been listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Well, last spring, our esteemed city manager, Bob Hart, invited me to be part of a group. Bob is not here today. So, you know, when you get a shout out from the pulpit, you ought to be here. He's out of town. But uh, Bob invited me to be part of a group of some just different leaders and pastors that really kind of have the goal of asking the question, okay, how do we make our community a better place to live, a better place to study, a better place to work? And it's a group of different leaders and pastors, and I, and I think everyone there just genuinely cares about our community. And one of the neat things to me about this group is uh, that they've really done the hard work of kind of gathering data to discover, okay, where are we as a community? What are maybe some of the struggles that our students have? And let's let that data kind of drive solutions. So there hasn't been this like real big agenda of what we're supposed to do, but we've kind of relied on the data. Now, if you're wondering, yes, I'm the lightweight in the room, but I've learned a ton in this process. And, and again, that process of gathering data and then working towards a solution, trying to understand the problem before we get ahead of ourselves too much has really been helpful to me. And here's one of the most important truths that I've learned in this process. And, and I recognize that it's a paradox, but the truth is, is that I believe that all of our society's problems are both complex and simple at the same time. For example, and all this data that we've looked at, one of the things that we've seen is students in our community struggle with a positive self-identity. Now listen, that can happen for a series of complex reasons, right? Like, you know, maybe these students have never stepped out and done something big and significant, and thus they have real confidence in who they are. And so then maybe the solution is something like, hey, we need to work with churches and uh, uh, cities and uh, maybe businesses and develop maybe internships programs where we, we have these students step out and, and really try something that's out of their box and learn how to succeed, learn how to fail and grow from it and all these things and maybe uh, help grow in their self-confidence. Maybe that's a struggle because maybe there's something going on in their home life. Like maybe there's an aspect of their home life that, that is really hard. You know, maybe mom is working too many hours or too many jobs. And maybe we can just fix the economy for everybody. That's a joke. But there's complex things that go on, kind of lead to where we are, right? But there's also maybe uh, simple roots to some of these problems. For example, maybe a student has a negative self-identity because maybe they're believing the wrong things about themselves. Like maybe the solution to their problem is, is to believe some of this Genesis 1, 2, and 3 stuff where they are created in the image of God. They have inherent value. They have inherent dignity. They have inherent self-worth. God has given a purpose for their lives and he wants them to walk in those gifts and those personalities that he's given them. And maybe the, the answer to some of this is, is that they can find a, a community and abundant life and confidence, all these things, as they believe the right things. Maybe our problem is really rooted in a belief that our own is rooted in the problem of believing that we are our own gods and, and instead of following the one true God. I think it could be as simple as that. So some problems are both complex and simple. I think we need to rightly understand the problem in order to get to the right solution. Th that's really why Genesis 3 is so important. 
This is the story of the fall of humanity. And so we're going to go down before we can come up. However, there is a sense of looking at the problem, going down into that fall. But there's also a solution and a a good news and a hope based upon that problem. But we've got to go down before we can go up. We need to understand the problem before we can get to the solution. We have a problem that only God can fix. But the good news of Genesis 3 is that God saves So what I want us to do is look at the first seven verses in this chapter, and I want us to look at the fall, and in a sense, we're diagnosing the problem. And then from there, starting in verse eight, then we get to the solution. We get to the solution of God saving. So the first question I have on there on your bulletin is what is wrong with the world? And the answer is we are. Any of you know G.K. Chesterton? This is a very obscure reference. He was an 18th century writer, and he was asked by a London newspaper to write an essay on what is wrong with the world. He was part of a group of guys who were, and ladies who were asked this question. They all submitted these essays. Let me, let me read G.K. Chesterton's uh, essay uh, response. What is wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I think that kind of gets to the point, doesn't it? Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Let's stop there. This, these uh, first seven verses uh, opens with uh, directly addressing the serpent. And then these next, this next six verses, we're going to look at this conversation that the serpent has with Adam and Eve. But the way the serpent is described here, he's described as crafty. Now the Hebrew word here is cunning or shrewd. It could also be sensible. Now you might say, okay, there's a virtue to being sensible, but really this word is about vice. Like it's a negative thing to be crafty in this sense. And it's negative because people who are crafty, or in this case, the serpent who's crafty, their intention is to manipulate people. And so that's really the heart of what the serpent and his minions are always trying to do in your life. They're trying to manipulate you. He's playing chess while you're playing checkers. But what he's doing here is he is trying to manipulate you in certain directions. However, we know the devil and his minions are always trying to manipulate us. The second thing I want you to notice in this, uh, this opening first part of the first verse is that the serpent is created. Now, if you go back to Ezekiel 38 or Isaiah, or Ezekiel uh, 20, 28 and Isaiah 14, it tells the story about how Lucifer was this fallen angel. And so he was created by God as this angel. He rebels against God. He is, uh, he's then fallen and kicked out of heaven, but he is a created being. Now, I think for our purposes today, there's three key implications for that. Number one is that nothing that happens in creation is outside of God's good sovereignty. So none of this that we're reading is outside of God's good plan for us. And second, this truth doesn't mean that God is the cause or the author of evil. He does not desire for evil to happen. Now this might feel like splitting hairs, but I think it's very important here. That God has created these beings, and just like you and me, uh, they, have, uh, they have fallen or they've sinned against God. And, and that doesn't mean that God desires for this evil to happen to you. God's not the author in that sense of evil. But third, it reminds us that God and the serpent are not equals. It's not as if they're playing this tennis match where they're both equal and one of them can win, the other one white man win. We don't really know. That's not biblical Christianity. God is more powerful than all of his creations and he's also not responsible for the sin of his creations. The key takeaway from this first verse is the serpent is not to be trusted. Rather, God is to be trusted. Let's keep reading. He said to the woman, 
Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any, uh, of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, let's stop again. This is about to get confusing, but remember, the, the serpent is crafty. In his strategy, he kind of has two strategies here, but the first one is he's trying to sow seeds of doubt. That, that's how he's crafty. That's how he's trying to manipulate Eve here. Notice that he says, did God actually say? Now, notice that this is an attack on God's word. Now, he's trying to manipulate. He's trying to, you know, maybe twist her and her understanding of herself and her relationship with her husband, or, you know, her feelings and her concept of truth. You know, he's getting to all that. He's trying to manipulate all those things. But the way he gets there is trying to cause doubt in God's word. So that's his, his primarily strategy, if you will. So God's word is this major theme that we've seen through Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And God said, and then there was light, right? Over and over again, we see that God's method of creation is his word. And we also see that life happens through God's word. And so God's word is this major theme throughout these first three chapters. But, but Satan's uh, strategy, if you will, is to try to cause doubt on God's word. Now, let me stop here and ask the question. Can Satan still do that today? Can he still cause us or tempt us to doubt God's word? I, I think the answer is clearly yes. Now, we need to be clear. Christianity is not a simplistic faith, right? Like our God is Trinity, and none of us really know what that means, right? I mean, we have a complex, beautifully complex faith, right? There's just depths that we are just never going to be able to mind. We're not going to answer, we're not going to have all of our questions answered here. So Christianity is not simplistic. However, there is this plain and clear emphasis on the role of God in our lives in these first three chapters. Like God communicates and if, we, and if we don't follow his communications, if we don't trust him enough, that's gonna lead to spiritual and physical death. It's very clear in these first chapters. And Satan, your adversary, he knows that simple truth. He knows that truth, and he's trying to get you to doubt God's word. It's plain, it's clear, and that's his intention to do that. So for the rest of your life, you're gonna be at this crossroads of, okay, the world says this, God's word says this, and which one of them are, am I going to believe? Which one of those am I going to trust? That's going to happen for the rest of your life. Who do you believe on issues of truth, salvation, heaven, hell, beauty, sexuality, sin, cancer, money, marriage, singleness, education, career, suffering, Monday morning's task list? Who do you believe on all of that? We're constantly at a crossroads. Are we believing God's word or are we doubting God's word? when you're tempted to deny God's word on an ethical position or a feeling or a behavior, know who is behind it. This is an ancient strategy. Also notice the danger of Eve's response. He's trying to trip her up by twisting God's word around and he's twisting it in such a way where he's emphasizing what she can't do versus her freedoms, right? Now she does a good job with that first part and she sniffs that out. But, but then notice, and this is really subtle, but notice that she adds to God's word. Now, if you look up at Genesis 2, nowhere does it say that they can't touch that tree. They can climb in it. They can build a treehouse in it. I think it would be foolish to do all of that. In fact, I think it would, would have been very wise for them to just stay away from the tree, okay? However, that is not in God's word, right? God doesn't say you can't touch it. Now, again, this is subtle, 
but she adds to God's word. So uh, again, this, th- this might have been subtle, but I think it's a major miss. Satan is tempting her to doubt God's word in order to get her to, to sin. However, she is outmatched in this debate because she does not know God's word well enough to effectively rebuke him. Do you see that? She doesn't know his word well enough to effectively rebuke him. I think there's a lesson there for us. There's a lesson there that when we don't fully know and understand God's word, then we are in danger of Satan manipulating us. The the serpent sought to get Eve to doubt God's word, and and she is now twisting it all up in her mind, okay? Look at verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Let's stop there. Notice this really slight shift in strategy. He went from kind of sowing seeds of doubt to just outright denial of God's word. It's as if he's saying God is lying to you. God's lying. His word is not true. You you aren't going to die if you eat that fruit. God's a liar. This is a stupid thing to believe. He's openly mocking God, right? Of course, we can ask the question again, can Satan do that today? Absolutely, right? Like, in fact, the the reason why most people abandon the faith today or, or don't even give the gospel a fair hearing, it's not for scientific reasons, it's for ethical reasons, right? Like, most people have these ethical objections to a biblical ethic, and that's why people reject Christianity today. So it's constantly this crossroads of, okay, are you going to believe God's word? Are you going to believe the world's definition of something? This is at the heart of why people abandon the faith today. Satan can still do this today. If you're one of our college students, then then you no doubt are are not only just facing subtle doubters of God's word, you're facing open deniers of God's word. But listen, there's a temptation behind that, right? Right? The temptation is this, that, that it got, if God's word is less truthful, and, and if it's not uh, right, then it's not going to lead to happiness. And so the crossroads is, is, okay, you have the world's view of something, you have God's word's view of something, and one of those is true, one of them isn't, and the one that's true, that's going to lead to happiness. And so that's the crossroads here. The world's essentially saying if you follow the world's teaching regarding your urges, then that's going to lead to happiness rather than living this God-honoring, self-sacrificing, self-denying life. Listen, denial is poisonous, isn't it? Like it just poisons all of what they do from then on out. It doesn't lead to heaven and it doesn't lead to happiness. When, when you're tempted with that, and we all are constantly, remember that it's a lie to believe the world over the word. It, it doesn't lead to heaven and it doesn't lead to happiness if you follow the ways of the world. Let's pick up in verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they, uh, and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And you might be reading this and thinking, wait, what? Adam was there the whole time? Hold on, let me make one more point and then we'll get to Adam. I want you to first notice the hook. Notice the hook on how Satan got her. You see, if she believed believed the world over the word, that led to her sin. But But if she believed the world over the word, 
then it would lead to life. She would be like God. That's what got her. You can be like God with this. It's good. It's, it's healthy. It'll make you wise. It'll make you like God. And that became the hook to get her. It, there's a great parallel in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's how the serpent got Eve. It was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It would make one wise. It was the pride of life. That's always the hook that got her. Now listen, friends, that can happen today, right? In what ways are you tempted to be your own God? Are you toying with something you believe will satisfy the desires of your flesh? Are your eyes causing you to sin? Are you doing something just because you think it's going to make you better than everybody else? How is Satan trying to hook you today? Well, second, notice that Adam was standing there the whole time. Is that shocking to you? I think that's meant to be shocking. We're reading along and wait a sec, what? He's standing there and she, just, she literally just hands the fruit to him. He's standing there right there. Ladies, let me pick on the guys for a moment. If you need to use the restroom, this is a great time to slip out for a second. This is for the guys, okay? Fellas, he is the first passive male. Like, guys, husbands, you should read this and your blood should boil. It, it should just send a chill down your spine, right? Like, husbands, what should he have been doing? Second Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The serpent is uh, providing some false teaching. He's teaching heresy. He's teaching something that is harmfully wrong to this woman that was a gift from the Lord that he was supposed to care for and to cover. He was at the very least supposed to speak up. He was supposed to say something. He was supposed to preach. He was supposed to teach. He was supposed to take the gospel and say, no, this is God's word. This is how it applies here. We're not going this direction. God offers something better. He was supposed to speak up. His silence is stunning, isn't it? Husbands, Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Guys, where's the sacrificial love in this scene? Where's the, the, the sanctifying washing of the word? Where's the shepherding? His silence is so unloving. Brothers, love your wives enough to speak up when you need to speak up. On a side note, I think Eve catches a lot of flack here, okay? But I think the reason she doesn't know God's word well enough is because her passive male husband doesn't teach God's word to her. He doesn't shepherd her with the word of God. She gets a lot of flack. I actually think Adam is the one to be blamed here. He's standing here. Nowhere does he slap that fruit away. Nowhere does he say stop. 
Nowhere does he say there's something better. Nowhere does he start quoting scripture. He's the ultimate passive male. He could have done a million different things. But I think at the heart of it, he was not shepherding his wife well. So they fell. And their poisonous nature has been passed down to us ever since. Third, notice the consequences of their sin. The serpent lied. They did learn a new experience, but it didn't lead to life. It led to shame, didn't it? The promise of sin is always life, but it always ends up in shame. They tried to cover their shame. Religiously speaking, what's going on here is they, uh, we understand that in their own human strength, they tried to cover their sin. But that's not the end of the story. Your next question in your bulletin is, what is the solution to what's wrong? Well, the answer is Jesus saves. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The problem is the first humans believed the wrong person, right? They chose to satisfy their fleshly desires and not faithfully follow the word. And it led to shame. It didn't lead to life. However, even worse, they chose to cover their sin but do it in their own strength. So fig leaves are not the good news of Genesis 3. Fig leaves are not the answer to the problem. They're not the solution to the problem. Their problem is much deeper than nakedness. But what's God's response? Beginning in verse 8 all the way down to 24, it explains how God saves. And it's this glorious in-depth look at these themes of his salvation, the way he saves. And that should be compared to these fig leaves. The first thing I want you to see is that God offers a relationship. Notice that he's walking in the garden. He's in their presence. We don't see this again until Jesus is incarnated himself, right? I mean, wouldn't we, this is like a dream for all of us. For God to just be right here with us. I mean, what a glorious thing. He offers this relationship with them. However, when God offers a relationship, the humans hide. Can we do that today? Can God say, come to me, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then instead of coming to them, we hide and we seek rest in fig leaves. Can that happen today? Let's keep reading. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Do you think God knew where he was? Do you think this all-powerful, all-knowing God knew where he was? Clearly, he knew where he was. What's he doing there? I think he's giving them an opportunity. He's providing an opportunity for repentance. He's calling them to turn from fig leaves and turn to trust in him. He's giving them an opportunity to turn. Have you turned to him today? What fig leaf are you clinging to? What, what sin do you need to turn from? What idol do you need to abandon? If you're here today in this room, know that you are here for a reason and do not leave this room without turning. Make that turn of faith today. I, I think that's the main reason you're here if you're not a believer today. God wants you to turn to him in the same way that he was offering this opportunity for repentance to the first humans. Let's do 10 to 13. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave uh, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. 
And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Again, do you think God knew who gave them the fruit and, and if they had eaten? Of course he did. However, in the face of uh, this offer of a relationship and, and this call to repentance, what do the humans do? It's the old, the devil made me do it excuse. They, they, they point to the devil. They, they, uh, they blame, he blames her, she blames the serpent. And worse, if you look more closely, Adam actually blames God. The woman that you gave me. This is worse than the devil made me do it. This is God made me do it. I blame you, God, for this. You're the problem here. Friends like us today, they are focusing on the wrong problems. Do you remember when the angel came to Joseph and, you know, was telling about the baby that's coming? In Matthew 1, he says this. He says that he will save his people from their sins. That's the purpose of Jesus coming. Now, if you ask the average first century person in Israel, I promise you they were more worried about paying their, their bills or paying their taxes, or they were more worried about the politics of getting the Romans out of you know, oppressing them than they were about their sin. But we always do this. Humans focus on the wrong problems. Like, like today, we're, we're probably more concerned of living a life without cancer or trying to make America the kingdom of God than we are dealing with the reality of sin in our life. God saves means that he focuses on ultimate salvation. He's cutting through all that noise to the things that are more important. The ultimate thing that is of most importance to them is dealing with this problem of sin. And we blame, we make excuses Our focus is on all these other things, but God is cutting through all that noise, focusing on this ultimate salvation. Look at 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you among the livestock and and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The fourth thing I want you to see in this passage is that God saves by judging sin. The ancient uh, theologians called this the proto-evangelion. That's Latin for the first gospel. They saw in verse 15, the very first gospel, that God is both judging and prophesying. He's judging, saying that I'm going to judge that sin. I'm going to curse you for that sin. But there's also a prophecy in there, right? There's good news in there. There's one who's coming. There's one who's coming, snake, and he's gonna crush your head. He's gonna stomp on your head. How do you kill a snake? You cut its head off. You crush its head. And and you're gonna hurt him. You're you're gonna hurt his heel, but he's going to kill you. So, So there's a judgment in here, and there's also a prophecy. God saves by judging sin. Look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Again, God saves through judging sin. Ladies, this is, I'm sorry, but the the pain of childbirth theologically is the consequence of sin. This is the point here is he's saying those things are, are a consequence of sin. He also goes on to say that, you know, there's going to be a desire to rule over your husband. But as we look throughout history, it's been the other way around, many times in very wicked ways. But, but, but what he's saying here is there are consequences for sin. There's a consequence for the fall. And again, God saves through judging sin. Look at the next uh, section, 17, 18, and 19. To Adam, he said, 
because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is, is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and, shall, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then verse 20. The man called his, wife, uh, uh, called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all that was living. Again, God saves through judging sin. Men, I'm sorry, but the weary and the seemingly futile nature of your work is a consequence of sin and the fall. When you hate your job, hate sin more. You see, when, when you hate the apathy and the futility that you feel at work, hate sin more. More importantly, when you want to listen to the wrong voices, remember where those voices take you. Remember where it leads you and trust in the word of God more. God saves through judging sin. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Fifth, God always saves through atoning for sin. Picture with it for a moment. Can you imagine the horror of Genesis 3.16. No animal has died up to this point. And all of a sudden, God brings them, he sits them down, he takes an animal, and he kills that animal. Blood is everywhere. He skins the animal, hopefully cleans the animal, and then covers their sin with that animal, and they're wearing that horror the rest of their life. Can you imagine how terrifying that must have been? They'd never seen death. They'd never seen blood like that. And then it was covering their sin. What is God doing there? You see, their fig leaves weren't doing the job. They needed his salvation, not their own. What, it, what we see here is that his salvation has always been through the shedding of blood. It's always been that way. And that's because God never winks at sin. I wink at sin all day long. I diminish sin over and over and over again. God never does that. God takes sin way more seriously than we take it. The violation of his word leads to death. He had to do this because our fig leaves, our human attempts to righteousness through the covenant of our sin have never been good enough. It's never been that ladder up to heaven that we believed it would be. So from Adam and Eve to Melchizedek to the tabernacle to the temple, God is always covering the sins of his people through shedding of blood. But we always need to remember those were temporary fixes. They never fully did the job, did they? They were like giving a cancer patient a Band-Aid. They never fully did the job, right? Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But the good news is 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Have you accepted his healing work today? He has shed the blood for you. He's covered your sin. Are you toying with fig leaves or have you accepted his healing work? Let me read these last few verses. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now at least he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken. He drove out the man and, 
And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Like a good father, Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. God loves his people enough to discipline us. In fact, I would say this is the sixth point, that God saves through discipline. His discipline is good. This is an old story. However, I think it has great relevance for today. Because I think you see these themes over and over and over again, don't you? We see this over in our lives that Satan and our own fleshly desires, we, we, we desire these certain temptations. We believe the wrong person. We reject God's word and we sin. And then instead of repenting and believing, we run and we hide and we try to cover our problems with our own solutions. However, friends, we have a problem that only Jesus can fix. But that's the good news, isn't it? Because not only can he fix it, he does fix it. That's the good news of this passage. God saves, and that's the greatest news. Do you believe him today? Do do you follow the word? Do you find hope and joy in his gospel? The fig leaves are not the good news here. It's what Jesus does. It's his shedding of blood. Let me close with Romans 3, verses uh, 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite preachers is Alistair Begg, and and he tells a great story about the the thief on the cross, the one who trusted Jesus in his final moments. Like all of us, Begg has has these questions, right, about, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna find this guy, you know, I wanna wanna know what this is about. And and he always says he kind of gets stuck on this thief, and and he wonders what it must have been like that moment he died, when he was standing there in heaven. You, You remember that old, evangelism question of, you know, if, if I were, uh, uh, why should God let you into his heaven? Beg wonders, okay, when, when that guy got there and he's asked that question, maybe by this angel, okay, why should God let you in? I mean, what a, what a strange moment, right? I mean, th- this guy didn't deserve to be there. I mean, moments before he's cussing the Lord, and then all of a sudden he's here. Now, in that moment, if you answer in the first person, or you answer with your resume of good works, Hear me, that's fig leaves. And that's gonna do you no good in that moment. Begg says that he longs to meet this thief in heaven and ask him about that moment because that, that man never went to church. That, that man never went to the men's Bible study. That man never tithed. That, that man didn't even faithfully follow like the most basic rules of the culture, right? Like he's a thief. He, he's, he should be up there. Okay, he, he's, he's dying for justifiable reasons. He's a scoundrel, yet he made it. And Beg wonders, okay, how, how does all this make sense? And he envisions this angel saying to the thief, what are you doing here? And the thief's saying, I don't know. <laughs> and in his mind, he goes so far to say, I, I, bet the, I bet he had to get like a supervisor angel. And I bet the supervisor angel, he comes over and says, okay, are you lost, buddy? Oh, okay, tell me your doctrine of justification by faith alone. Tell me your, your doctrine of the scriptures. And this guy just, he's got nothing. 
And, and then Beg goes on to say that the, in his imagination that the thief replies, I'm only here because the man on the cross said I could come. Amen. We have a problem that only Jesus can fix. The old hymn says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while with God he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because of the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. We have a problem that fig leaves cannot fix. But the good news is that God saves and Jesus fixed it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for Genesis 3. Thank you for this glorious reminder that these silly attempts that we make to find salvation, to find life, to find righteousness with you, they're so silly. They're just fig leaves. Lord, we thank you for that one true eternal gospel that you shed your blood, that you covered our sins. Lord, if there is one today who is not turned, who is like Adam and Eve where you're just giving that opportunity for repentance to turn and if there's somebody here hiding, if there's somebody here blaming, I pray this would be the day that they would turn, that they would trust you, that they would trust in your salvation, that they would see whatever they're pursuing is just fig leaves and they would pursue you or give them the grace to see that. Indeed, even as we sing, that they would slip back and speak with one of the elders or pastors. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that you shed your blood. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray, amen.